Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Winston Churchill once gave some wisdom. He said, if you have an important point to make, don't try to be subtle or clever. Use a pile driver. Hit it once, then come back and hit it again. Well, last week we hit the wisdom of the cross. This week we're going to hit the wisdom of the cross. We have a very important point to make. Christ and him crucified. Paul, in the book of Corinthians in chapter 1, toward the end where we're at now, slams down his power driver and hits it once, the wisdom of the cross. He slams it down and hits it again, the wisdom of the gospel. Then he slams it down yet again and hits the wisdom of God the wisdom of the cross, the wisdom of the gospel, the wisdom of God, over and over and over again. It's incredibly important because Paul seems to go back to it over and over, and I don't know that we can escape it either. This morning, we're going to be talking about three truths about the wisdom of the gospel, three truths about the wisdom of the gospel. And so we're in 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to begin reading in verse uh, let's say 25. Can you bring that up for me into 25, Kara? Thank you. Wonder again, would you rise to your feet just out of respect for the reading of the Word of God? This is the public reading of God's Word because I want you to know that we're trusting what God says, not what man says. Amen. But the Bible says this because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's what we laughed off last week. Verse 26, new material. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that... Just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You may be seated, and may God bless the reading of his word. 
Here's the first truth we want to look at this morning is that we can experience the unbelievable paradox of the wisdom of the gospel. The unbelievable paradox of the wisdom of the gospel. And when it comes to the gospel, when it comes really to the church or the things of God, there are many paradoxes. The kingdom of God is really an upside down kingdom. You've heard things like this. Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Paradox. If you want to gain your life, you have to what? Lose it, right? When it comes to the wisdom of the gospel, there's another paradox. And so let's look at the first part of what Paul is telling us about this paradox. And that is those in the world ignore God's invitation. Those in the world ignore God's invitation. In verse 26, he says, for consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Paul says, hey, I want you to look back over the church. And it's like saying, hey, First Baptist, I want you to look at yourselves. I want you to consider who's here. How are we made up? There's not many who were called who were wise according to the standard of men's wisdom. There were very few in the church at Corinth that had risen to positions of prestige so that they would be called mighty. Many people there weren't noble as to their birth. The word there is well-born. Rather than being like that when they were called and when they were saved, it was most likely the opposite. For the few that may have been well-born or those that may have been of noble birth, following Christ has resulted in loss of prestige, loss of income, loss of influence, Things like wealth and birth and wisdom, they really truly hinder people from coming to the gospel because Jesus himself said, it is easier for what? A camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Here's what I know. God is not looking for valedictorians or famous people or millionaires. He offers salvation to all, no matter. But he desires everyone to come but many people that are chasing after those things simply ignore his invitation. You see, God's wisdom is a paradox because man says that strength, intelligence, statue, or, or stature are what really matter. But here's what I've come to find out, that with God, the person who humbly follows Christ is wiser than any PhD who would scoff at the gospel. Matthew twenty-two fourteen 14 says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Many are favored with man's wisdom, but few are chosen because they ignore God's invitation. Many are invited, but few choose to come because the world ignores God's invitation. And that leads to the second part of this paradox. God invites those whom the world ignores. God invites those whom the world ignores because if you look there, he says, not many were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But he says, consider your calling. That, that word calling is the effectual call to salvation. When, when God begins to work in a man or a woman's heart and begin to lead them through the process to where they will be saved, he says, hey, consider that how you were called. You were called to salvation in spite of those things that the world looks to. You weren't saved because of your brilliance, because of your wealth or your intelligence. And, and you know what? I'm thankful because I was none of those. <laughs> Aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful that God can save anyone? Amen. 
But did you notice the text said not many were wise and noble? Aren't you thankful for that little M? <laughs> because he didn't say not any of you were saved. He said not many of you. So if you're here today and you're, you're fairly well to do and you have a whole lot of wisdom, God can save you too. Huh? Amen. Not many, but he didn't say not any. He said not many. So praise God. I'm thankful God will save anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus. But then God says in verse 27, he says, but God has chosen. Did you see that? God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame things which are strong. That literally says in, in the Greek there, it says God chose you for himself to be saved is what it literally says. God chose you for himself to be saved. In other words, God is personally interested in you. This is his own loving choice. Now, for sure, there is an element of mystery between God's sovereignty and choosing and man's responsibility to believe. But I want you to know, before anybody was ever saved, God made the first move. God's always made the first move. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it this way. He said, I'm glad God chose me before the foundation of the world to save me. Because if he had waited until I was born to choose me, I'm afraid he would have never chosen me. Consider what kind of sinner I really am. He's chosen the foolish things to shame the wise. He says there he's chosen the foolish world, uh, things of the world to shame the wise. That word shame means to reduce to disgrace, to cause to blush. God has used the things of this world that what the world views as foolish to cause the wise to blush. In other words, look at that old guy from the Appalachian Mountains up there preaching at First Baptist this morning. It makes those people want to blush when they look at what God has done in my life. He said God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those which are strong. This word weakness is the same word that is referred to those who are suffering with an illness in the scripture, the sickly. God has chosen those who seem weak and sickly. Who could, God could, how could God use those people? But he does that to shame those which are strong, those which think they are healthy. Verse 28, and the base things of the world and the spies God has chosen. Isn't that interesting? Earlier, the, the word was well-born, but, but here, the, world is, the word is the despised or the, the weak things of the world. It's interesting that that word means to be considered to be nothing. And what's even more interesting to me is, is that it's written in the perfect tense, which means this. That it's something that's happened in the past but continues in the present. So therefore, what this tells me is, is that the world says that I'm nothing will always say I'm nothing. But Jesus said I'm something will always say that I'm something. That's just what happens with God. He says the despised things considered to be nothing. He's chosen the things that are not. And so you have to understand in Corinth, to be called somebody who was not literally means to say that you are nothing and that your life is nothing and that you add up to nothing. It was the, the most heinous of all insults was to call a Corinthian nothing. You're nothing. But you're a nobody. But God has invited those who are nobodies to be somebodies. 
He said things that are, the things that the world puts at the top, intelligent, wealth, wisdom, prestige, position. God has put those at the bottom. Why has God chosen these weak, despised nobodies? Why does he come to our lives and say, hey, I choose you? Why does he do that? Because he wants to reveal his glory. He takes nobodies and makes them somebodies. He's chosen things that are no significance and the things that are scorned. And he takes those and he demonstrates his own purpose and his own power. That's the paradox of the wisdom of the gospel. I mean, who would have chosen Judas to be a disciple? Who would have chosen loudmouth Peter to be a disciple? God, God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame and despise the wise. God chooses people who the world calls weak to shame those who depend upon their political and military clout. Did you know, listen to me today, listen to me today. Did you know that God chose you and you have no power, no military clout whatsoever so that when you fall on your knees, Putin has to listen to what you pray. Did you know that today? So that you would shame the wise. He will not get the glory. God will in all ways. Did you know that one of the greatest awakenings of the 19th century began in Cambridge University in England? D.L. Moody and his singer, Ira B. Sankey, came to that center of learning. The whole university was outraged that this backwoods, uneducated American preacher would dare to appear and speak at the center of the English world. They knew that D.L. Moody couldn't speak proper English. They knew that he murdered the king's English. The students were determined to hoot him off the platform. So Moody steps out on the platform and he says, Mr. Sankey, sing. And Sankey sang and Moody stepped out on the edge of the platform and looking directly at the students gathered there, he said, you gentlemen, you don't think God don't love you, but he do. You don't think God love you, but he do. And the Holy Spirit of God fell upon that place. And God took an uneducated, unwise, unwealthy, backwards shoe salesman, had no education at all, and used him to start one of the greatest awakenings the world has ever seen. Because God takes joy in using the things that the world despises to show the world his glory. That's the unbelievable paradox of the wisdom of the gospel. And can I tell you this morning that Jesus Christ can do that for you too. You may think that you're a nobody here this morning. And the truth of the matter is it may be true. You may not feel that way. The world may have told you that way. But can I tell you, you are an image bearer and you matter to my King Jesus. And he died for you just like he died for me. He died for anybody that would believe and his saving grace, and he can tell you, you can experience that paradox today. You can leave here saying, I was a nobody, but now I'm a somebody. That's what he does. But number two, we can experience the undeniable purpose of the wisdom of the gospel. Not this crazy paradox of the wisdom of the gospel, not only that, but the purpose. In other words, what is God up to? I mean, why would God do this in a paradox? So what's his purpose in all this? Well, he answers that by telling us three different things. The first is, this is the, the possibility for glory is only going to be in Jesus. Because in verse 29, he says, so that no man may boast before God. No man may boast. That's, that's an interesting word. 
No one would glory, your, your, your version may say. But, but as I studied this, it's not the typical word for glory. One would expect doxazo, if you know Greek. You'd expect it to be that word for glory, but it's not. It's a, it's a completely different word. It refers to the attitude of boastfulness. And what's really crazy is it's written in the subjunctive mood, which means it's, it's a possibility. In other words, God is saying, if it even was a possibility that you could boast, the only possibility that you could boast in would not be in yourself. The only possibilities are that you could boast in Jesus. It's the only possibility that exists. Man's fallen heart always seeks to boast in his accomplishments, even if not outwardly seen, it exists in our hearts. Man cannot possibly save himself, and his redemption is totally in the result of God's grace alone. That leaves no room for his boasting. One man said it this way, one cannot boast in what another has achieved for him. God saves us this way because he wants it to be only possible for only Jesus to receive all the glory and never man in any shape, form, or fashion because it is all to, by, for, and through Jesus Christ. Amen. Then God also desires some things for us. It's not just for God's glory that he does this, but he does it for our good because the position in God is only in Christ. The position of God is only in Christ. Look there in verse 38. He says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Can, can I just get somebody to say amen right there? Everything God does is for his glory and for our good. The saint to be in Christ is for his glory, but it's also for our good. There's so much I could preach on. I could preach for years on what it means to be in Christ, but let me tell you what it means basically in summary fashion. To be in Christ means, first of all, that we have a saving relationship with Christ and are brought into union and communion with him in such a way that we are in Christ so that what is true of Christ becomes true of us. His grace and his resources become our experience and our possession. So the life of Christ is now in us by virtue of us being in Christ and Christ in us. It's a double union, if you will. My entire life is now lived for Christ, but the life that I live is lived by virtue of being in Christ. His grace, sufficiency, and the riches of his mercy are now available to me, and I'm in the family of God only because of Christ. In other words, let me say it more simply. I'm not really living for Christ. It's Christ living for him through me. When I am in Christ, it does a lot of things, but I've got to move on. One more thing is the provision of God is only in Christ. Verse 30, he says something interesting. He says, you are in Christ. It became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ has not only given us our position in Christ, but he provides resources for us in Christ. In other words, by being in Christ, I have what Christ has. What does Christ have? Well, the Bible says that he has wisdom. Those of us who are in Christ have the mind of Christ. Because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, those who are in Christ are able to perceive and understand and even comprehend the plans and purposes of God. Did you know today that because you have the mind of Christ, you can know the will of God, and that is hidden from the world? We're not saved by man's wisdom, but we're given God's wisdom to even replace our own. God chooses the weak to make them wise so that Christ gets all the glory. 
In Ephesians 1.17, the Bible says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Did you know today that you have the mind of Christ? Did you know that? Did you, did you, somebody ain't hearing me today. You have the mind of Christ. A lot of times people, you know, we used to, I think it's great and it's a great saying and I'm not bashing it, but did you know when we used to wear those wristbands, WWJD, you don't have to really ask. You've already got his mind. You know what he should do. The question is not what would Jesus do, but am I going to do it? I mean, that's, that's the truth in the matter, right? We're educated far beyond our obedience, right? Y'all, y'all know that. But then we also have righteousness, he says there. Our sinfulness, listen to me, this is, this is a little deep, but I just want to make it simple. My sinfulness is transferred to Christ, and Christ's righteousness is transferred to me. I have sinned and Christ becomes sin for me. Christ has no sin and only has righteousness. He takes my sin and I get his righteousness. That's pretty mind-blowing. But what I want you to pay attention to is this is really a legal term. When the scripture speaks of righteousness, it means that we are legally made right before God. In other words, there's another word that we would use. It's called justified. In other words, God declares us not guilty before him for all of our sin. We have been, we were guilty, but, but God brings down the gavel on his son Jesus on the cross. And if we believe in that, God says, you are now not guilty because this man, my son, has paid for you. It's a legal term that means I am now in right standing with God. Man could never, never do that on his own. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's something crazy. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, he said this. He said, my righteousness has been in heaven 1,800 years because Christ is my righteousness. <laughs> That'll preach right there. That dog will hunt. Even if y'all ain't hungry, it'll preach. All right. Then he says this. He says, sanctification. Now, sanctification is a word that comes from the word holy. It means to be set apart. Whereas righteousness is legal and it's instant. This is relational and continuous. You and I in Christ are given the ability to become like Christ and continually be made holy. As we continue in Christ, watch this, the frequency and desire for sin decreases and the hatred of sin increases. As you walk with Jesus, the frequency and desire to sin, it it decreases and your hatred of it increases. We're given the Spirit, and we can walk in the Spirit. We can bear the fruits of the Spirit. But 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being now transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You and I are in Christ, and one of the things that we've received is that we begin to become more like Christ than His holiness. But I want you to go back to that word righteousness, and then I want you to think about this word sanctification because you have to understand something. If our standing before God was legal only, if it was just righteousness, then the effects of our salvation would only matter in eternity. It would have little relative consequence here. But those who are in Jesus Christ are not only legally right, now we're made to live right in holiness. 
Now we're set apart unto God and from sin to be like him. In other words, this is what theologians call progressive sanctification. That I would be closer in looking like Jesus today than I was last week because Christ is in me, not because I try harder. First, then he says this, he says, and redemption. That word redemption means to loose or to free by means of a payment. The cross of Christ gives us the mind of Christ, the right standing before God and practical holiness. But then the the cross and through Christ, we're released from the slavery that we were in to sin. We're released from the penalty of sin, which is death, the payment of sin, which is a life, and even one day the very presence of sin. Did you know that? In Jesus, the, the the very payment for sin has been paid. The, the, the power of sin has been broken in your life, and one day you'll be removed from the very presence of sin. It's amazing. First, First Peter 1, 18, 19 says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with what? Precious blood. As a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for the what? Blood applied. Romans 6, 18 says, and now having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Is there anybody in the church here house today that wants to give me a little bit of feedback? Has anybody been set free from sin? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. I mean, I'm going to have to preach to myself if if y'all don't help me. Then he says there in verse 31, he says, and so that just it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In your Bible, you will see this, and I encourage you to keep bringing your physical hard copy to church because it's just a reminder to you that you're going somewhere different and you're coming to one special book. I just want to encourage you, ain't nothing wrong if you got your cell phone with you, but I I just want to encourage you to bring the copy with you. There's just something about this. But, but if you'll notice there in the text, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, it's all in capital letters. That, that means it's come from somewhere else in the scripture. In other words, he's, Paul is quoting somebody. Who's he quoting? Well, he's quoting Jeremiah. He's quoting Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. It says this, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Sound familiar? But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. You and I could never earn, deserve, or produce any of this stuff, but here's where Paul is headed, okay? I want you to put it in the context of what we've been talking about. This church was a divided church. Y'all know that, right? That they were fighting over lots of different things. Here, put it in context. What Paul is saying is this. Once we understand that all we have is in Jesus Christ, once we understand that Christ has provided it all, that none of us are better than, none of us are, are superior to anybody else, once we understand at the cross, we're all equal. Once we do that, it takes care of all division. That's what he's saying. So if anybody's going to boast of anything that they have done, they can't boast because it's all about Jesus. May it be said, may it be said of us all, Galatians 6, 14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus through which this world has been crucified to me and I to this world. That's a good place to say amen. 
You've all seen this kind of stuff. If you go down to Austin, you'll especially see it. There's all kinds of creations people make from stuff that other people want to get rid of. Some people call it art. It could be old thimbles, piano strings, rusted gears from weapons or bicycles, bent paper clips, door hinges, cabinet knobs. Should I go on? But each part is virtually worthless. But then somebody, an artist, comes along and they turn that useless odds-in stuff into this extraordinary piece of art. What I'm trying to tell you is that God is such an an artist that he can take what seems to be worthless stuff and turn it into priceless pieces of art. Listen to me. Don't ever forget your junkyard beginnings. Don't ever forget where God brought you from. Because listen to me, here's what I'm trying to tell you. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Here's the point Paul's trying to make. God makes you into an awesome piece of art, not so that people would say, that's a nice piece of art, but that people would say, that must be a great artist. That must be, there must be somebody that knows how to do something with this stuff. Because when I looked at it last time, it was just junk. But now I look at it, oh my goodness, it's displayed for everybody to see. When the world looks at us, they say, hmm, maybe that's a great Christian. No, they're going to say, what a great Christ we serve. That's it. It's all for the glory of Christ. Vance Havener used to say this. He wants to say, well, you know, one boy got his eyes healed when they put mud in him. One boy got his eyes healed when they put spittle in his eyes. Then another fellow got got healed when Jesus said so. And so he said, if if that had been back in the 20th century, there had been three denominations built out of that. There would have been the Mudites, the Spittites, and the Speakites. (laughs) But he goes on to say that God says he's not going to do the same thing with everybody in the same way. And what he does is never to bring glory to man. It's to shame the wisdom of this world. God does it so that he can get the glory. I want you to know something. When God wanted Joseph to be exalted, what plan did he take? Man would have looked at the story of Joseph and said, well, I tell you what, let's just give him a PhD. Let's take him to school. And then we're just going to put him right at the top in there with Pharaoh. That's how we'll do it. But but God had his brothers sell him into slavery. He was thrown in a pit and taken into Egypt, and then he was falsely accused, and he spent his life in a prison for a false charge. And finally, then he became the second man in Egypt. And when his brothers came to him, he simply said, hey, what you meant for my harm, God meant it for good. And who got the glory? You tell that to an ordinary man who's trying to figure all these things out, and he'd say, that's just stupid. And that's the very purpose for which God does it, is to confound man. It's to shame man's wisdom. To say those things which are despised and the world looks not on, God will use for his glory. In Judges, you see it over and over again. Ehud was a left-handed judge. I mean, how could God use left-handed people? I'm teasing. Gideon was there in the wine press. The Midianites had come in the eighth year, and they were out trying to get a little wheat, and God said, hey, hey, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. (laughs) And everybody knew that wasn't true. 
This is dumb, man would say. Why would God pick somebody who's not truly a man of valor? Because God's going to make him into something he couldn't do himself. And the God said, Gideon, in case you get the big head, I'm going to narrow the army down to 300 from 3,000 just so that you can understand that I'm going to get the glory, not you. I could tell you another story about Deborah. Deborah goes up against 900 iron chariots. What is God doing? What is God doing picking, picking this, this woman to go up against Sincera when, when he had these 900 chariots? I mean, because God makes choices that, that makes man look foolish. They're perfect choices. They're, they're very powerful and purposeful choices. And it's a shame, the wisdom of this world, but there's a purpose in it. You've got to embrace that. The fact that God chooses things that men see in his foolishness is many times the detriment to the wise, the strong, and the noble. Many people will say, I just can't buy into this stuff. It doesn't make any sense to me. It shouldn't, and it won't, because this is how God does it. He does it in a way that he can only get the glory. You can experience the unbelievable paradox and the undeniable purpose of the gospel, but lastly, very quickly, you can experience the unchanging presentation of the wisdom of the gospel, the unchanging presentation they were fragmented and division had set in. So Paul picks up his hammer and he just drives it down one more time. Bam! He says, let's get back to the gospel. We keep wondering why we keep saying the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 over and over and over again because it is the only thing we need to talk about. Paul says this. He, he makes some, some clarifying remarks about this presentation of the gospel. He says, first of all, the message must be an expression about the Savior. The message must be an expression about the Savior. He says, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Redemption and salvation cannot be obtained through human wisdom. Listen to me. Salvation cannot be obtained through human wisdom. Y'all know that, right? Everybody with me on that? But something you may not know is this. While it cannot be obtained through human wisdom, it cannot be proclaimed through human wisdom. Neither, neither obtained or proclaimed. Paul says, I didn't come as a philosopher. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it because I heard it somewhere else and it sounded good, but it's true. Can, can I just tell you what, what I want you to know? I'm never going to be your politician because I'm your pastor. God didn't send me here to preach politics. God sent me here to proclaim the word of God. And that's what I'm going to do. Paul says he didn't come with this philosopher. He didn't come with this, this, this superiority of knowledge. He came as a witness to the revelation of God, not of his own wisdom understanding. He didn't come with a superiority of speech. That, that word superiority means to have something and to have it above. He says, I didn't come with something that was above, like the Greek philosophers who came and said, hey, I've got a higher form of learning for you. He came with the testimony of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2, he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. Wouldn't we do well to make that our goal? If you want to cease fighting and you want to cease all the stuff in your life and you just, hey, look, just make this your goal. Christ and Christ crucified. If we could all unify on that, praise God, we'd be a great church, amen. Can I say that every pulpit should be one where you don't hear opinions about politics, economics, or whatever you want to put in the, in the blank. You should come to hear a message from the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit. The primary task of the pastor is the ministry of the word to make manifest the truth of God through the spirit of God and the power of God, Amen. First Timothy chapter four, verses one through three. 
Paul says, hey, Timothy, but the Spirit explicitly says in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines or demons. By the means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. It's happening. Y'all see it happening. I see it happening all the time. But what does he tell Timothy to do? First Timothy 4.13, he says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And if that wasn't good enough, he, he goes on and he says earlier in first, uh, Second Timothy, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is judge of the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Y'all read this with me. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's what Justin's supposed to do. That's what we're all supposed to do. Just preach the word. That's why we bring this book. That's why we stay in this book. That's why we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians because we're going to preach the word because we just need to make it about Christ and his crucifixion. When we preach the word, it'll be about Jesus because guess what? This is all about Jesus from beginning to end, isn't it? You can't miss Jesus in this, can you? It has been said that the preaching of the cross, listen to this, this is for Justin. The preaching of the cross was so dominant in the early church that many Jews and Gentiles accused Christians of worshiping a dead man. And people today say, you just keep preaching about the cross. That's all you do. It's all you do every week, in and out, in and out. Well, the message must be about the expression of the Savior, amen? Then the message must be empowered by the Spirit. He says there in verse 3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. After what he dealt with getting to Corinth, one can imagine the weakness, fear, and trembling. Uh, Paul had come after being beaten and imprisoned in Philippi, if you'll remember. He was run out of Thessalonica and Berea. He was scoffed at in Athens. Paul had every reason to compromise the message and to change the message. He was fearful and trembling because he knew the gospel wouldn't take root in some places. He was not afraid of the gospel losing its power, but he was afraid of it being rejected and the terrible consequences that would fall upon a people who rejected the gospel. And I tell you today, we can and will face times of weakness, fear, and trembling. But then Paul says in verse 4, he says, And my message and preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. His words were not persuasive in the sense of a clever argument, but in demonstration of the Spirit. Demonstration there means convincing proof and display. What was lacking in men's persuasiveness was equal in the Spirit's power. And I want to tell you today that I want to preach in the power of the Spirit of God. I know today that if anything happens in this room, it's not because of my power to convince you. If anything happens here to move you close to Christ, it's because the Spirit of God did it through his word. And then in verse 5, Paul says this, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of God, men, but on the power of God. Paul says, hey, if I could talk you into it, somebody else could talk you out of it. Our faith is not anchored in what men say. It's anchored in the ability and the power of the Spirit. Charles Spurgeon also said this. He said, the power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men will be the converters of souls. 
nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist in the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted, till we would exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the word of God to give it the power to convert the soul. Amen. The message must be about the expression of the Savior and empowered by the Spirit. But then lastly, very quickly, the message must be embodied by the speaker. Must be embodied by the speaker. Verse 1, he says, I came to you. I didn't come in all this. I came about the testimony of God. And verse 5, hey, listen, I didn't want you to think that your faith rested on me. Your faith, our faith is not in our ability, but it's on God's power. His confidence was not in his ability, but in the ability of the gospel to do what it does. Paul never changed the message, and I will never change the message. Never, I do not have permission to change the message, praise God. And you can accuse me all day long, but you go back and you will see, I will never and have never changed the message. A certain church had a beautifully stained window behind the pulpit. It depicted Jesus Christ on the cross. So one Sunday, there was a guest preacher who was much shorter (laughs) and smaller than the regular preacher. So the little girl listened to the guest preacher for a little bit, and then she turned to her mother and she said, Mommy, where is the normal guy who stands there so we can't see Jesus? May that never be the case for any man who would stand in any pulpit that he would ever keep anybody from seeing Jesus. That is what this is for. So today, Oscar, if you guys would come, you can experience the unbelievable paradox, the undeniable purpose, and the unchanging presentation of the wisdom of the gospel. I may have bored you to tears, and I know you've got a lot of things on your mind, but can I tell you, if you haven't listened to a thing I've said, would you please zone in to me right now? I want to ask you today to consider something. I want to ask you today, have you ever truly put your faith and believed in the gospel? Some people say, you know what, I've always believed. No, you haven't. You've not always been alive, have you? There, there came a point in time in your life when you were birthed. There had to be a point in time when you were born again. I mean, have you ever repented? Have you ever turned from your sin and turned to Jesus? Have you ever asked his forgiveness, been forgiven, received new life, heard the Father declare that you are not guilty? Has that ever happened in a time and space moment for you? You haven't always believed that. Say, I've been raised in the church. Great, have you ever been raised from the dead? Being ra- Listen to me. Being raised in the church no more makes you a Christian than being raised in the jungle makes you a monkey. Well, pastor, but, 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 but I, I, I believe in God. Great, great. The demons believe in God, but they've never trusted Jesus to save them. 
I'm, I'm a good person, pastor. Great, great. The problem's not that, you're, that you gotta be good. The problem is that you're dead in your sin. You, don't, you, you need a savior, not an example. Somebody here today and maybe driving down the road, you're thinking, maybe you're on the internet and you say, you know what, I've been baptized. You don't need a baptism, you need a new birth. You need a new birth. I don't want to be embarrassed because many people, they, they thought I was saved, and now if I go up front, that they'll know I wasn't. <laughs> what a shame if those people that you're afraid of thinking about you, what if they're in heaven one day and you're not because you were worried about them thinking you weren't already there? What good is it you do worry about what people think? If you have never, ever put your faith in Jesus and received his righteousness and been declared not guilty for your sin, friends, I'm telling you, you have never truly been saved. I'm religious and I'm very spiritual. Great, great, but have you ever repented and been saved? This is not about spiritualness. All of us are spiritual. So if you've never given your life to Jesus, can I just tell you today's a great day to do that? See, if you've never been raised from the dead and you've never been put your faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you, trusted that he died, buried, and was raised for you, today can I ask you right now in this moment, would you just simply give your heart to God? And I'm going to lead you in a prayer to do that right now. So if you're in the room, around the room today, would you, just, would you just bow your head and would you begin to pray for those maybe around you, people that you know that, that don't know Christ, maybe at home or around even the world. But right now, if you have never received Christ, if you've never truly been born again and, and it had to happen at a point in time, I want you to pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I realize that I am a sinner. I have broken your law and I've broken your heart. I believe that you died to pay for my sin, that you were buried and raised again to give me life. I'm trusting that today to save me. Have mercy on me, oh God. Please forgive me. Please come into my heart. Make me new. Give me the new birth. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you for Jesus. Help me walk with you. Help me live for you. Help me follow my Jesus. And I pray it in his name. Amen. I wonder if you'd rise to your feet. If you prayed that prayer today, 
I want to ask you to come up here and let me know. Or you can come and let Justin know. Or you can come and let some other people know because we want to celebrate with you. Do I have to do that? Something about it when you do. Maybe others of you in the room, maybe there's something else going on in your life that you need to pray about. I'm going to be here. Justin's going to be here. We're going to pray. But brother, you sing and you come.